Uh, our speaker today is Matt Bai, who is the chief political correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. When you are a veteran of the New York Times, uh, regardless of your gender and regardless of uh, when you were there or how long you were there, you are a colleague of other people who have that uh, distinction. So I consider Matt to be a colleague of mine. Um, he has been a distinguished correspondent. He is now covering this very complicated political uh, environment in this election year. And it is my great pleasure to have uh, you here with us. And I, uh, based on what Matt has said, he's going to talk about politics. He'll talk about the times. He'll talk about just about anything that he wants to uh, address. But first, he's going to talk about politics. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for coming. It's a great crowd. I, uh, it, it's terrific to be back in Boston where I started my career. I, I take it that's the video. <laughs> it's, uh, it's okay. Um, I, um, I started my career here uh, at the Globe. I spent a semester at the IOP in 2001. Alex probably doesn't even remember this, but uh, uh, it's whatever it was, 10 years ago or so, he and I, I and our common friend Joe Klein had dinner together, and for me it was like listening to the Giants speak. You know, I don't oh, mean the football yes. team, I mean my <laughs> <laughs> the elders. <laughs> and uh, it was a great memory for me, I'm, and so I, I appreciate the introduction very much. Uh, when Edie emailed me a while back and said, you want to come and do the lunch, I, it took me about you know, 12 seconds to say yes, because uh, much as I'm running around, I, you know, I love the Kennedy School. I love what you all do at Shorenstein. It is critically important, I think, particularly in this environment and the speed at which information travels and the number of stories people do, to, to, for people in my business to sit back and think and to get our faces away from the bias. As a magazine writer, it's a core tenet of what I do. I think probably for some of my colleagues, when I stop into the bureau time to time, they probably wonder what it is I do. But it, it, is, it is necessary to look out windows and flip through books uh, and think about where we are. And, and the fact that people can come here and take time out and really think about what they're doing, I think is incredibly valuable. Now, having said that, Edie emailed me back and said, well, what's the topic of your talk? I said, well, I don't know. You just asked me to come. I haven't talked. So I, I, felt, uh, I felt I should, I, I provided a rather, this rather grandiose, uh, pretentious title, which I'm now stuck with, and so are you. Uh, but um, I, what I want you to know, I, 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 I do want to talk about anything you want to talk about here today. And, and truthfully, um, you know, what I would talk about is pretty obvious because as they say about they say about fiction writers, right, that they all have basically one story to tell, and they tell it over and over again. I think the same is true of long-form nonfiction writers many times. And if you followed my work at all over the last ten years, hey, um, or so at the magazine, I, I've <coughs> often circled back to tell the same story uh, over and over through different means, and and that is the story of how profound technological and social and generational shifts in the country are inevitably affecting our politics, uh, and particularly uh, as it relates to the assault on the large institutions and establishments that used to dominate American life. It's a relevant topic right about now as you watch these Republican primaries unfold, and I know you all watch with some interest. Because one of the most amusing aspects of this year's campaign for me has been the extent to which all the candidates uh, really just contort themselves in an effort to position themselves as barbarians at the gate of their party's governing culture. Uh, at various times in the last year, right, this group of outsider anti-status quo candidates have included 
just take a look at this, right? Uh, the son of a former leading Republican presidential candidate. Uh, the three-term governor, the longest-serving governor in the history of Texas and former chairman of the Republican Governors Association. A former senator from the state of Pennsylvania and lobbyist. A congresswoman who uh, knows her way, spends more time in Washington TV studios than most producers I know. Uh, and, of course, the former Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. This is one of my, in fact, one of my favorite... Uh, one of my favorite things about this campaign, to the extent I've been out there, I was out in Iowa, I hung around Newt Gingrich for a while. And I really enjoyed seeing, uh, he's, he's a tremendously entertaining guy to, to be around. I know it, it inspires, I know a lot of, a lot of emotions. But one of, the, one of the great things was watching Newt get up in front of audiences in Iowa and say, when I get to Washington. <laughs> I, I mean, he's been in Washington for 30 plus years. He lives in McLean for crying out loud. I wrote, I wrote him, uh, I did a piece about him in, uh, after hanging around with him. I wrote in the magazine, you may say that, you know, if you were elected president, he could actually walk his boxers to the White House. His office is on K Street for crying out loud. When I get to Washington. Now, you know, there's nothing new about the cult of, of outsiderness in politics. I don't want to suggest that that's new. My, I can tell you my earliest political memory, um, which, you know, will seem, will make me old to some and possibly young to others, is, is hearing of Richard Nixon resigning. I was about six years old. And in a sense, thank you, I'm not going to get to that at all. Uh, you know, in, in a sense, if you think about that moment coming on the heels of civil rights and Vietnam, <laughs> Uh, I think that that was a line of demarcation in a way we think about our politics. If you think about Nixon's resignation prior to that, uh, four of the five presidents the country had elected were Washington insiders had come up through the United States Senate. The fifth was Dwight Eisenhower, who was hardly a stranger to the Washington establishment and not, hardly a rabble rouser, right? Familiar figure. Since that time, four of the six presidents we've elected have been governors with no experience serving in Washington. A fifth, Barack Obama, I would argue, is, is actually the most uh, legitimately outsider candidate of them all, having spent very little time uh, in the Senate. Uh, and the sixth, of course, the anomaly there being George H.W. Bush. So outsiderness has become you know, a critical part of our political culture. I mean, consider we've now seen three presidents in a row lose control of the House of Representatives from their governing party during the course of their presidency. I, I would argue that it actually would have been would have been and should have been three presidents in a row who would have lost both chambers of Congress were it not for the involvement of the Tea Party in the 2010 primaries. Um, that is unprecedented in American politics and it speaks to something very deep going on in the culture. <coughs> What's new now is the way that technology I think has afforded newcomers to the process and genuine outsiders some very real influence over the political debate and the fortunes of both parties. Some of you may have read, I recently spent time in South Carolina with the Tea Party activists there, which for me has been a kind of on and off pursuit over the last couple of years. Uh, and the first Tea Party activist I spent a lot of time with, <coughs> first met in the summer of 2010 and then saw him subsequently, was a guy named David Kirkham. <coughs> David Kirkham is in Utah. He makes custom cars. I don't know if any of you are car enthusiasts. I am not. But he makes a replica of the Cobra, which he will uh, make for you in copper for a million dollars. <laughs> Larry Ellison of Oracle actually bought one. 
I'm sure Larry Ellison appreciates the fact that he gets mentioned every time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, David Kirkham was a guy who, uh, you know, successful businessman who had never been engaged in politics, who had maybe voted Republican, considered himself nominally Republican, wasn't that interested in primaries, didn't listen to talk radio, never heard of Glenn Beck, but he did have a lot of experience doing business in Eastern Europe where they made a lot of his cars, uh, a lot of the parts to the car. And he had very strong feelings about statism and centralized economies because he had seen what happened to the workers there. And he was concerned about TARP. Uh, it really bothered him when George W. Bush oversaw that passage of TARP. The stimulus package under Obama really bothered him. He began to feel that we were moving to our collectivization. And he goes online and, of course, finds all these people talking about the move towards socialism in the country and gets engaged in the conversation. And when the Tea Party started holding rallies, David Kirkham didn't understand why there wasn't one in Utah, presumably because there are no Democrats in Utah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he, he took it upon himself to do this, and he, for the first time in his life, went to hold a, a political rally, and 100 people showed up, and he was very relieved because he didn't feel foolish. And within months, he had 10,000 people on a list, and they succeeded in unseating Senator Bennett as the first casualty, really, of the Tea Party uprising. What struck me about David Kirkham and what has struck me about many of the Tea Party activists I've met since, Delaware and South Carolina and elsewhere, is how strikingly familiar the story was to me. Because, uh, as some of you may remember, I spent a lot of 2004, 2005 with activists of what was then being called the progressive movement, the online progressive movement on the left in America. And I wrote a book called The Argument about it. And of course, there's an unbridgeable ideological chasm between these two groups of people, but there are tremendous, striking similarities that I think bind them together. And when you understand those similarities, you understand something about what's going on uh, in the political culture. I call these um, flash movements or mini movements. Mika may have a better name for it, and, uh, and 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 because they come together very quickly, based around a very powerful emotion of the moment, the cathartic. And they have common characteristics, and there are many of them, but I'll mention just a few. One is these are virtual internet-based movements, and they have to be. They would not exist were it not for the proliferation of broadband media. Um, one of the, David Kirkham you know, certainly would never have gotten involved had he not been able to go online. He wasn't going to go to political <coughs> rallies. There weren't any. In any way, he's a busy guy, and he got his time late at night when he was able to go on the computer. You know, I remember traveling with liberal activists on the West Coast in 2000 five and staying at the house of Susan Gardner. I don't know if any of you know Susan G, if you're a Daily Coast fan. She's a terrific writer on uh, Daily Coast. And, and we stayed there one night. And you know, Susan lives up in the hills over Santa Barbara. And she was a reporter uh, when she was very young. And then she had kids. And she quit to raise kids. And they never even got cable TV up in those mountains. Those are pretty steep mountains if you spend a lot of time <laughs> in Santa Barbara. I'm sure some of you have. And uh, you know, it, it was hard to even get news up there. And it wasn't. You know, perhaps Susan could have gotten involved in politics by, she could have driven down the mountain, which would have taken a half hour, and gone to the local party meeting, and the local party would have given her Robert's Rules of Order, and two years later, she might have been selected to be on a committee, and maybe she would have gotten to speak, and whatever else. But it wasn't until broadband becomes available in those mountains that someone like Susan can go online and uh, find like-minded people, not just in her area, but all over the country, and become not just a participant in those conversations, but a very powerful voice and advocate. Again and again, you see people in these movements 
who have never been involved in politics in any significant way. Uh, I'm so glad that's not me. I that was me. Um, who've never been engaged uh, in politics and who, are, who, who have found a way now to make themselves heard. Closely related is the second point I would make, which is that these movements are closely related to what I like to call the devaluing of expertise in the society. Right? So what I mean by this is there was a time not long ago where if you were sick or had an ache or a pain, you went to the doctor. You made an appointment, you went to the doctor, and you said, what might be wrong with me? Now you go to WebMD. You figure out what's wrong with you. You figure out the treatment. You find a doctor, and you say, here's what I need. Right? It used to be you brought your uh, investment portfolio to a broker. At least that's what I'm told. I don't have one. Um, you know, now uh, you have E-Trade. Right? It used to be that you went to the card lot. You said to the dealer, what do you have on the lot? I'm interested in a car. Here's what I might be willing to pay. Now you go to cars.com. You know exactly what you want and the options. You know what it costs. You go to the dealer, and he's either going to take your price or he's not. We have uh, generally <coughs> broken down the walls of information and knowledge to the point where people uh, either disregard or often have contempt for what our formal expertise. This shouldn't be threatening to any of you here at Harvard. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and so it's not surprising that so many of these people would watch this kind of cavalcade of arrogance on cable TV of so-called strategists, who these people have ever been strategists for, I do not know, or, uh, or, or commentators or buttoned-up politicians and think to themselves, I know as much as that guy, why shouldn't I be the one to tell? Why shouldn't I be the one to get involved? And I think, too, finally, it's important to remember that these are leaderless, decentralized movements that are built less on any central uh, and we forget this in the media very often, less on any, any central sense of identity than on a sense of community. Uh, and community is vitally important to movements both on the left and right. Um, you know, it was here that Professor Putnam wrote, you know, Bowling Alone, which is incredibly prescient. And these are the folks, the Tea Party folks, and before them, the, the people on the, uh, in the progressive left who would have at one time joined the Elks Club or would have joined the Garden Club, or would have gotten involved in some way, and people don't anymore. And particularly, again and again, you find with the activists <coughs> in both of these movements, with the Tea Party folks I've met in particular, you find people who are either have moved around a lot and are new to an area, or who live in geographically remote places, like Susan Gardner, uh, or who in some cases have very difficult family situations or backgrounds, and who are, who are looking not just for a political voice, but for a sense of belonging um, and community that people really want to have. This is, I think Move On was a lot about this. Um, and that's a very powerful force that underlies all these conversations. Now, you'd think uh, that people in my business would do a little better job, you know, would, would not have difficulty understanding the basis for these movements, because we are, of course, uh, seeing art landscape transformed in exactly the same way. We used to have, as you know, better than I, a few big institutions, a handful of networks, a handful of national papers, a couple of wire services, and they were the keepers of information. They were the large institutions. Now we're challenged every day by tweeters and bloggers and besieged by critics of our own expertise <laughs> who think that uh, 
that we shouldn't have anything to say. And frankly, I, I don't know how many of you watched like you know cable TV during these primary nights, which is the first time in a very long time I've sat down and watched cable TV. Can you really blame them? Uh, I, I, I can't, and I exempt your colleague David Gergen from this because I could listen to David Gergen all day long. I think he's brilliant, but. Is that really the best political team on television? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's the best political team at CNN, frankly. Um, and so, you know, when you watch these panels yelling at each other, uh, it's not surprising that people feel that way. And media, too, is becoming a community-based affair. What else is Huffington Post if not a community? It's not bringing you information you can't get anywhere else. It's not. It, it, it's, what it's bringing you is the ability to consume that information with like-minded uh, consumers and 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 like-minded providers, um, and that's okay. I mean, that's that's uh, that that means something to people. It brings something to people. Now, if you're like me, you might often find this conversation around politics or media to be deflating and uh, and dispiriting. It can be often uncivil. Alex and I were just having a, a conversation about the rhetoric used when uh, on some of these on some of these places when I'm talking about the president I was struck in South Carolina by the the rhetoric uh, that's so routine on Tea Party message boards and Facebook pages uh, about this president as someone who the country cannot afford for another four years that we cannot survive that the very the very uh, survival of the country is at stake and this from a movement that of course has built its entire imagery around the revolution I find that dispiriting and I sometimes find it frightening. And I can tell you from a media perspective, I mean look, I my son now, I have two children, my the older one is six, and he's learning to read and he can download his own iPad apps and all that. And soon soon enough, in the next couple of months I presume, he's gonna figure out Google. He's pretty close. And um, I don't know what I'm gonna tell him. I mean a couple times a year I plug my name into Google. Like sticking your head into a to a lit oven, you know, just to see. <laughs> and and yeah, I can't believe, you know, I, I can't believe the things that it's I find it's you know, the things that people will say about you. It's so depressing. It's half of half of them are associated with this university in one form or another. But um, but it, it it can be very disparate. And, and and the other thing that I find very um, I don't know if it's alarming, you know, really just deflating about it is is that I the extent to which people want to talk to themselves. Uh, and, I, and you see this in, 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 in mainstream media too. I mean, I often have talked about this in terms of I fear that we're leaving an age of, or have left really, an age of persuasion. A point where you could grab people and give them a, a point of view or a set of facts that they would have to wrestle with. And we've entered this period of confirmation where if you don't have your worldview confirmed in the first couple of lines or paragraphs, you just write it off as flawed and you go to uh, one of the hundreds of websites where you can find people who will tell you that the world is exactly as you want it to be. You can go to some very august op-ed pages and have the same experience. And, uh, and that worries me. Because I think it's our job, particularly as journalists, to challenge our own preconceptions and challenge the preconceptions of our readers. But I have to tell you, it can also be very inspiring. And I don't think we should be entirely negative about what's happening in, in politics in particular. Right? A few weeks ago, uh, I got a call from David Kirkham on my cell phone, and he said he wanted me to know, but he's about to go out and make an announcement, he's going to run for governor of Utah, and he's going to primary a sitting Republican governor. And he was really excited about it. And I, I got to tell you, I mean, I, 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 don't dis I don't agree with a whole lot politically that David Kirkham would have to say, and I'm guessing that virtually no one in this room would agree with much of what David Kirkham has to say, but 
I don't think you could spend a lot of time around him and not think he'd be an honorable, well-intended public servant and who, who wanted to reform what he thought was wrong with politics and do good things for people. And that is the basis of what we do. At the end of the day, for all the chaos and fury they create, I think these new flash movements are essentially about more people getting engaged in the political process, more people having their voice heard through the media and other means, rather than just a small circle of elite practitioners. And I would submit to you that if your field is politics or journalism, and you don't think on balance that's a good thing, you are probably in the wrong line of work. Uh, so thank you for hearing me talk about this for a while. As Alex said starting out, uh, this is kind of a starting point for me, but I, I, I know you have all kinds of other interests, and it's fun for me to just come and talk about whatever interests you, so uh, please fire away. Thank let you. Me, let me uh, start the questioning, and then we'll open it up. Um, you've been out there covering the campaign, and you have uh, probably as good an ear for the, the, the thinking of the Tea Party as anyone. Um, if Mitt Romney gets the nomination, do you see the Tea Party either, one, creating a, an alternative, maybe through America Elects or some other mechanism, or simply <coughs> sitting out the election? Uh, is, is the Tea Party, and I know that we're talking not about 100% here, we're talking though about a significant portion is the sort of reluctance that's obviously felt among the Tea Party part of the Republican Party toward Mitt, something that is going to be enduring, or is that something that uh, once he gets the nomination, if Santorum is the vice president, say, they'll say, well, okay. That's an interesting thought. Um, I, I would say both on that point, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. I, first of all, uh, the, the possibility of an independent third party run and those are not the same things, as I'm constantly telling people. I mean, I think that the viability of a third party versus an independent candidacy in this country is, uh, are, 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 there's a gulf between the two. They, they mean different things. But let's just put that aside for now. Uh, the possibility of a challenge from the right, I think, is real and, and existential for Romney were he to get the nomination for the Republican Party. It's going to take very few points to throw an election. I mean, uh, you know, Ross Perot won eight, what, 18% in 1992 to essentially make it impossible for George H.W. Bush to be reelected. Uh, Ralph Nader. It, uh, Ralph Nader, right, took considerably fewer. I mean, it, it would take very few percentage points, more like that, I think, to throw this election. So obviously they should be, they have to be concerned about that, and there is, there, you know, there will be some energy behind doing something like that. Uh, if it doesn't happen, if that doesn't happen, it probably won't. Uh, because it also requires a very willing candidate and, you know, a, a host of factors to come together. Then I think, you know, my, my sense of it, for what it's worth, is that Romney doesn't have an electoral problem because politics now is so oppositional and movements are so, op these movements are so oppositional in nature. I mean, this is about, just as the left in 2004 was dead focused on getting rid of George W. Bush, uh, I think the right right now is very much focused on deposing this president as they see it, and uh, I don't, I, I don't think they uh, they would let anything stand in their way. In other words, I think those voters are going to the polls one way or the other. But now, where I think it is actually quite consequential, this is why I say both. You know, does he have a problem? Is once you get beyond that, because if you met Romney and you win the presidency, there's an interesting thing here. I mean, um, 
you might think to yourself, well, Romney's a more moderate guy, and he also governed here in Massachusetts, and he's gone some distance to try and placate the base of his party, but he's less, certainly not as beholden to them as other candidates have been, and he's done less than other candidates have done. So you would think, well, if he can get through and he wins the presidency, and he does it without them, he's now empowered to, to, to run a pretty centrist presidency. It doesn't actually work that way, because he will have tremendous pressure, more than George W. Bush would, for instance, to placate the base of his party. He can't have a civil war. When you're president, I think the more distrusted you are, the more you often feel you've got to bend over backward uh, to, to, to reaffirm that support. And I think that's the dangerous thing for Romney, is, that, is, is whether he could actually govern uh, without feeling like he was constantly having to make up ground to a right wing he has obviously not won over. I mean, it's a rough analogy. It's not quite the same thing, but I, I, I would argue that Barack Obama has spoken less about poverty and race in America than any Democratic president since before Lyndon Johnson. Why? Because he doesn't feel he can. Because, you know, be, be, because he comes, uh, it, it's not a base thing, but he comes to the presidency as the first African-American president, the first northern industrial state president in, since 1960, and feels that the minute he starts to talk about some of these traditional Democratic issues, it's a conversation changer. Going to become, it's going to get out of control. You know, I think presidents are are defined. Their presidencies are defined partially by who they are, but also largely by the room they feel they have to maneuver. And I think Romney, if he wins the nomination the way he's winning it right now, provided he's winning it, which is which is to do so really without uh, enlisting the support of the base of his party to the extent he'd like to, uh, will have a lot less latitude as president if he wins. One of the people that we had as a fellow last semester was Mark McKinnon, who's been very involved in the America elects. And he and I are doing a thing in South by Southwest right. together. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, now, the thing is, according to Mark's view of it, uh, this organization has now done all of the heavy lifting in removing the barriers to <coughs> independent candidacy. I think that would be the way they would want to frame right. it. That's right. Which is to get on the ballot mm -hmm. in 50 states. He says, that's going to happen or has happened already. Mm -hmm. If that is there for somebody, some independent candidate to take, mm -hmm. I mean, are we looking at a, an independent candidate that is going to be a marginal person, a Donald Trump, a, uh, you know, somebody nobody's on, Joe Lieberman, or is it going to be <laughs> Ron yeah. Paul or, right. or, the, or the disappointed conservative Newt Gingrich, for instance, I mean, it's going to be there. It's well, going to be sense. being on the ballot is going to be there for the taking. So I don't know the specific rules around Americans. Like, my sense is, I, I'm working off memory, and my sense is that they have some... They have an election. They have, they have a centralized... There's some veto control. They have an election. They're, they're, they actually correct. can't be taken over by Ron Paul, right? Well, no, that's, that's not true. That's exactly correct. Well, <laughs> that's not my... The, cred the credentials <laughs> committee can overrule the decision right. of the delegates. But let me take... But, but let well, me... I mean, does that mean that Ron Paul can't be the nominee? Presumably, the investors in the party were told this was part of how they would. That Ron Paul can't. So they be couldn't like. Well, the I don't reform, know if it was done Remember when Pat Buchanan yeah. overran the Reform Party? And right. they, they're trying to provoke, they're trying to prevent that, right? But but I, I would take your take your question in the aggregate. Cause I, Americans elect the side, because I don't think that's necessarily going to be a big factor in this election. We are past the point. There are there are there are two traditional barriers to an independent candidacy in America money and ballot access. And by the way, it's designed that way, the ballot access. You wouldn't sit down and design it. It's designed this way 
to keep people from doing exactly this. It's a very hard thing to do. We are past the point of those two barriers being determinative in a, in a presidential election. It will never happen again that you look up and say, wow, you just, we got a great independent candidate, but you don't have the money and you can't get on the ballot. That's gone. The internet took that away. Those walls are gone. So whether it's American ele Americans elect or some other thing, we are, uh, we are in a new terrain. And I believe if the two parties continue to kind of throw incumbency back and forth at each other like this albatross, right, while, while not uh, actually addressing either cynicism in government or solving core problems people feel they have, you will get an independent president. Because the only thing missing right now is a candidate. That's not a small thing, because you need somebody with a lot of name ID and maybe some money and the right positioning. And I don't, I guess the closest thing out there is a Mayor Bloomberg. I, he doesn't want to run, and I don't, I don't, I, I think there are more problems with that than maybe people around him would consider. But there will be somebody. I mean, look, in 1992, which was a considerably different time, right, prior to the explosion of the Internet, prior to all the time since then that, that America's been moving away from institutional affiliations like the two parties rely on. In 1992, Ross Perot basically announced to the world that he was a lunatic and got 18% of the vote. <laughs> right? He yeah. said, yeah, they're trying, to, they're trying to ruin my daughter's wedding, and the Trump was like this crazy psychotic stuff. And 18% of the American electorate went, okay, he's better than either of you guys, right? We are, at a, we are at a exponentially different point in that process now. So I am a believer that uh, we either either one of the two parties, and I think Obama to an extent did this in his campaign. Either one of the two parties will co-opt the reformist, dissatisfied, uh, anti anti-party sentiment in American politics, or, or or they will get a president who belongs to neither. I, I think yeah. that's true. Let me invite students first to uh, to ask questions. Yes, I, I'm actually not a student. I, I, You're I, like I, a professor now, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let me, I, I do want to, I want to give students preference. Are there any students who have a question? <laughs> yes. Um, so, you, I like the idea of it being like a flash movement, because the, the key thing about a flash is it's over pretty quickly. And, and the, to some extent, that seems to be what's going on with the Tea Party, right, which is that Sarah Palin, everybody's forgotten she exists, and her ability to get candidates selected seems to have waned. So, how do parties successfully, effectively capture these moments and turn them into control, into, into people who will turn out activists who they can lock in, because that's what you want to do if you're an elite who controls the party, right? You want to make sure that those Tea Party people right. assuming are... You're, assuming an elite still controls the party. Assuming they do, but like, I mean, that's what these right. the, the guys who run the DNC and others are yeah. trying to do. So are they being successful in, in turning oh. this into institutionalized support? What's your name? Jonathan. John, are you an undergrad or graduate? I'm, I'm an MPP at oh. okay. um, Well, you hit on a really important point to start with. I, 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 I've written, I, I think one of the characteristics of such movements is that they're going to be ephemeral. And I think they're going to be ephemeral, at least in, in, the, in the kind of intensity we see them arrive on the scene. I think they're going to be ephemeral for one reason above all. Aside from the fact that all cycles are just moving faster in American life, and, you know, in the internet world, things just last less time. Um, you know, you, you spend six minutes on my article instead of 12. But um, one, the main reason they're going to be ephemeral is that they're oppositional. Uh, they don't. We had three great movements, I would argue, in the 20th, the 20th century politics. You had the progressive movement of the early 20th century, the civil rights, the social movements of the 1960s, and the conservative movement of the 1960s and 70s. They had broad agendas for change they wanted to enact that, that were sustained over a period of many <coughs> years and many defeats. Um, they were, whatever one believes ideologically, great movements in that sense. 
Um, these, these, you know, the reason I call them mini movements or flash movements is because they do not, they are not uh, centered on any constructive vision of how to reform government. They are, they are centered on opposition to the status quo. And I just think by my own theory about it, political scientists might know better, my own theory about it is that that's, that's ephemeral because that doesn't drive the larger historical kernel of politics. Uh, I don't think the parties control this, but it is inevitable, I, I don't think they, I just don't think they control anything anymore, but they disagree. It's, it, it's inevitable, though, that some amount of this activism, and this is what's cool, I think this is what's really cool, that some amount of this activism will uh, transform itself, will be transformed into the next generation of consultants and candidates and campaign managers, just as, the, just as it is inevitable <coughs> that today's tweeters and bloggers, you know, some, some amount of them will become, uh, you know, columnists and, and traditional journalists. I mean, there, there is, uh, it, it's a new kind of pipeline in a sense, and I, I do find that really cool. So yes, of course, you know, there's, there are going to be a number of David Kirkhams who run, and a couple of them are going to win, and a couple of them are going to become, one or two of them are going to become national figures, and that, that's going to, you know, that's going to create some leadership that is centralized and that is injected sort of into the DNA of of a party, but that's I mean, that's how it, that's how American politics ought to work. I don't think I think trying to co-opt, you know, a guy. I think a personality can channel a movement in the way that Obama ultimately did in 2008. He was not the favorite of progressives in 2008, and he inherited a lot of the anti-Clinton sentiment and then the anti-Bush sentiment, but channeled it, I think, very effectively at that time. Uh, but I think I don't think parties can channel that kind of energy. I just don't think people care about parties anymore. It's generational, so I just don't think. Americans under a certain age, in any large number or in any uh, significant intensity, will care about uh, a party per se. Students, yeah. Um, hi, I'm Hannah. I'm an MBB one at Penn School. Thanks for introducing us. Um, Second so year or first? First year. So when you talked about these ephemeral flash movements and and them being ephemeral because they're oppositional, but then in the past few months, there's been a really interesting newer development in like the Komen issue and the Sopa Pippa issue where the same thing happens. People yeah, yeah. rise up online. Like many, many movements. Yeah, the many, yeah. many movements, but it's yeah. not opposition to the status quo. It's more issue-driven mm -hmm. activism, although I guess you could argue, especially with Komen, that it's ideologically driven. But do you think that that has, what's the relationship to those kinds of movements versus two-party yeah. kinds of movements? And do they have the same impact? It is interesting, and I don't know. I mean, you know uh, ben Ginsburg, the uh, election lawyer, Republican election lawyer, he's a very smart guy, has a whole, um, you know, has been arguing against campaign finance reform for a long time. And one of his arguments is just this, that we are creating a world. I, I, I would probably disagree with him that I'm not sure you can preserve the old world. But he, you know, he argues that you're creating a world where it's going to get, you know, movements are going to get down to the granular level. They're going to be lobbying committees. They're going to be issue-based, right? They're going to be so micro that it's going to distort the political process. Um, and I guess there is some evidence you know, to see that. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, you look at something like Coleman Planned Parenthood, uh, you know, with which I'm not intimately familiar, but I've talked to people about it. I mean, that, that to me seems like it's in the best tradition of organization. It's just online organization, right? I mean, something gets a lot of people really upset who feel that their interests aren't being served, and they come together very quickly and change them. I mean, I think, uh, I think the ability to do that is much greater now than it used to be. Uh, technologically, um, but you know, I think it's what people have always tried to do. Uh, I just think they're more capable now, and so you know, a certain amount of that is just um, 
a newer, better, more nimble iteration of very old organizational principles. I think Gina Glantz was here as a fellow, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, you know, Gina, Gina's an, the expert in this. Um, uh, but, you know, are we headed for smaller and smaller movements aimed at more and more specific targets? I hope not, and I hope not because I find the community aspect of all of this one of the most inspiring pieces of it. And um, if, if what it ultimately leads to is a, a sort of uh, disaggregation, right? I mean, like a sort of, if, it all, if, it all, if what it ultimately leads to is uh, just, you know, tiny pockets of people banding together in their own self-interest, now I don't think that's particularly good for the democracy. It was. It strikes me that that on the one hand that issue happened, and then immediately on the heels of it, Obama introduced his his you know contraceptive thing, and that got turned around as well. I mean, it was really very interesting about how these uh, the web certainly facilitated all of those things. Yes, sir. Uh, so you mentioned earlier kind of a parallel between this deinstitutionalism in the political life and the deinstitutionalism in, in journalism. You've been at the Times for a couple of election cycles now, and I'd be really interested to hear how you think your own work has changed or evolved to deal with some of these like technological pressures and deinstitutionalism and maybe like less trust of, of some of these big institutions. How do you think the Times is reacting to that? And how does that affect kind of how you go about doing your job? That's interesting. What was your name? Josh. I'm an MVP one. Okay. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, was, I, was, I was talking to Edie about this. I, um, so I, this is my third cycle with the magazine. And in 2010, uh, I went inside, I, I moved from the magazine to the paper for the first time I'd never been, and I started writing a column for the paper. It was the first ever political column in the news pages of the Times, and it was a big deal, and it seemed like a really fun thing. Um, and it was, it was, and I still do it. And I, I do, you know, I do them whenever I feel like it online. But, you know, there's a couple of things that surprised me about that. And one was, there is, I, I felt a little, uh, a, a little frustrated because there's so much commentary out there that even in the, even, you know, it's the New York Times, you think, you know, you put your footprint down in the New York Times, well, that's all that matters, right? And people see it. But people just don't read that way anymore. And I felt like so often I was just adding commentary to commentary, whereas when you do a magazine piece, you spend all this time on it, and then you sort of force people to deal with it because it's, it's you know, people still want that. They still want that long form work, you know. Um, it, it's amazing. I, I just feel like it has, the, the, the commentary, even, you know, in an institution like the Times, has so much less value now, in a sense, than it used to. Um, and the other thing I really realized in that experience, and, it, you know, it's basically shaped how I juggle it now with the column and the magazines, it was kind of, all the action was kind of online. I just stopped thinking about the print edition at a certain point uh, because it felt like whether I was on, unless I was on, you know, the top of A1, which was rare for, you know, a column. I mean, you know, when I was in the back of the, you know, the national section or A20 or A21, it, it felt like all I heard about with people who saw it online was all about the homepage. It's just all about the homepage. Um, and so, you know, you begin to understand, I began to understand in a, in a visceral way what I think I knew intellectually was that which you know is all the things I'm talking about, which is that the institution no longer commands a certain uh, audience simply by being the institution. It's beloved, it's revered, it deserves it, and uh, and, I, and I think it's an essential institution, as, as Alex was saying. But but we were talking about this earlier. But uh, but I but it, it we have to work for our, we have to find ways to reach readers just like everybody else. 
Um, I, I'd like to offer one thought, yeah. and I'd like to get your reaction to this. It seems to me that the power of the New York Times now is not commentary. You say commentary is all over. It's reportage. Sure. And your magazine pieces are pieces of reported journalism. That is something that is a, not in great supply. That's something that I think makes it. I think that's a right. Distinction. And I think the cover of the Times Magazine still is, is one of the very few venues left where, uh, you know, I guess it's a little like, I get talk show hosts must feel this exact same way. Like they're all trying, they're all looking for the Ed Sullivan moment where, <laughs> you know, you know, where everybody gathers around the TV to watch and now there's, you know, 20 talk shows and cable <coughs> channels and it's a disparate audience. I mean, I think the cover of the Times Magazine to me is still one of the very, very few places in journalism where you can get everybody gathered around to read, where you can, you know, get a very wide <coughs> group of people reading at the same time on the same issue and start a conversation. That's just incredibly um, hard to do. And, you know, I watched this for a long time. I, I, before I was at the Times Magazine, I was at Newsweek at the beginning of the, you know, what I would call the decline. And, you know, the, the, the sort of desperation, the increasing desperation to, to drive that audience, to find, you know, to find that mass audience that had once, you know, faithfully every week taken that magazine and read whatever was in it, you know, was really palpable. So, you know, I think large media institutions are having to figure out that we can't, um, you know, we can't just take for granted that if you put it out there, you can have anything like the impact you used to have. Where it becomes difficult for me, I'll tell you quite honestly, where I wrestle with it still uh, all the time, and I don't know, Ron, you, you, you probably less so than me. I, I, I have a little bit of unusual neuroses around it, but it, it's, um, is, is this struggle of how much to, to promote your work, how much to use social media, what to use it for. I mean, I have colleagues who are just tweeting all day long. In addition to the fact that I don't know where they find the time, I don't really feel I need to share a lot more of my thoughts with the world. Like, I, I, I share plenty of my thoughts with the world, and people don't like it as it is. Like, I don't really, you know, my, my, my wife doesn't want to hear more. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, but at the same time, you can't do what, you know, some, like, in a perfect world, would I disengage completely? Would I not tweet? Would I not Facebook? Would I shut down like magazine writers used to do and just go into my hole for two months and write? Absolutely. Like that, that to me must have been a golden age. I don't want to mix it. I don't want the fight. I'm not here for the fight. I'm not here to have the debate. I don't like, I mean, I have things I believe, but I prefer to tell stories and put them out there and let people fight about it. Um, but we just don't have that luxury. Readers aggregate. This is a generation, generations now of readers who aggregate. They're Flipboard, they're Facebook, they're, you know, they're, they're Twitter. They are finding things. They're finding things in a variety of ways and they're finding voices detached from institutions. And if you don't present your work in different formats and, and uh, you know, build some following beyond your institutional following, you can be relevant. I mean, if you're at the New York Times and New York Times Magazine, you can be, certainly be relevant and find readers, but not as relevant and not as, not as present as you might like to be. And for me, the exciting part of it is that I get to talk to people, because I do hear. I mean, I, I get, you wouldn't want to see the emails. But it, it, a lot of them are actually constructive, and a lot of people go to my Facebook page, and a lot of people write to Twitter. And and uh, that, to me, is one of the greatest things about the gig. It's like, you know, just I can hear from a lot more people than I used to hear from, and that that makes it, you know, I, I for me, personally, that's very rewarding. Go ahead. Um, Justin Guest from the Department of Government. Um, 
I wonder about what you said about the revolution in technology and how that's empowering opposition and protest movements. Why have we not seen it empower incumbency and people in power just as much? Why have the has the incumbent or the establishment not been able to wield the same power? The power of specifically the, the precisely the technology that's undermining them. I'm just Justin guest at the government department. Justin was a student here when I was a fellow in 2001. <laughs> he's a true student. Helped me out with my study group. Now he's like a full-fledged professor and whatnot. Matt, Matt, um, is, Matt has been my mentor for a long time. Uh, <laughs> Stuck the mentor. Uh, yeah. You know, um, I think it is, uh, it's, 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 you know, it sounds like an obvious question, but it's a difficult question, right? Why don't incumbents, why can't they figure out it? Because they, they sure try. It's not for lack of trying. They do everything they can to be cool and hip and, uh, and sort of channel the moment. And it's always like you're, you know, it's always a little bit like your friend's dad making a corny joke at the party. You know, it's like, you know, having a beer with the kids. Like, oh, just don't. You know, these, these politicians who tweet and do these online videos, it just, it just makes you cringe for them, you know. Um, I think it's, it's has to do with this institutional, I mean, because they represent institutional power. And, and that's not where the intensity of uh, the Internet and the intensity of social media is. You know, the intensity of the Internet and social media is about uh, breaking down walls. It's about <coughs> permeating institutions so that you know, power is diffused. It's about a diffusion of power and, and a democratization of information, which is kind of a cliche term now, but I still think important. And you can't do that with incumbency because you, you represent a party and you represent a, uh, a governing establishment. Uh, and you represent, in a sense, the opposite. You, know, you, represent, the ex you represent exclusionary power. Um, and I, I think the challenge for all those folks is, is you know, and I, I do see them wrestle with it all the time in a very genuine way, uh, is how to engage the public in new and creative ways, which they want to do, uh, without cheapening either uh, their office or seeming to be not genuine. And you see the president wrestle with this you know, right from the start. You remember, I don't know how many remember, but I... I remember doing an essay in our inaugural issue. All, some of you may remember all the pictures of Obama's people. It was, it was a really cool issue, and I did the essay that went with it. One of the things I noted was they had already started in the weeks after the election selling, like, Obama merchandise, like, you know, presidential merchandise. You know, $5 hats were to raise money for you know, <coughs> organizing for America. And it was, you could see them wrestling with this issue, which in a sense is what, you know, Jimmy Carter wrestled with in a less technological way. Just how, how do you connect to people in intimate ways without cheapening or the office or, or bleeding the regality from the office, right? Uh, and I think it's a very, very hard thing. You know, I, I don't think I could sit there and do it better. I think it's a very, very hard process of trial and error. Yeah, I, I know. I'm sorry. We've got to, we've got to, I, I feel like I've, I've got to caution He's you. He's always today. been like that. I've got to ask you to make the yeah. answers as short as possible okay. because we've got a lot of people I don't right. want to speak to. You. I'm yeah. going to now get yes or no answers. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm a Danish journalist, Martin Burkhardt. Uh, uh, Joe Hagen had this piece in the New York Magazine, I don't know if you read it. Uh, one of the points he made in this piece was that uh, super PACs are actually taking, taking over the media's role to a certain extent, doing research on the oppositional candidate. I was wondering, I mean, so right. that's just one sign of how uh, social media, but also super PACs and the, you know, this report decision has changed right. uh, this election cycle compared to like, I've covered these elections as well as, as you've done in 2004, 2008. 
I see a completely different landscape out there. I was wondering, I mean, it's just as a point of departure of the region. You know, I, I'm less of a, uh, and I, and let me, I'll preface this by saying, I'll keep my answer short. I, I don't think it's a positive development for the democracy. Having said, and I think it's new. Having said that, I don't think it's completely new because I spent a lot of my time in 2004, you know, talking to people affiliated with a couple of billionaires who spent over a hundred million dollars <coughs> of their own money to try and get George W. Bush out of office. Now, um, you know, this is that was individual money. This is corporate money. The amounts are going to get higher, but I, I, I would hypothesize that the money is going to follow the intensity and the anti and the anti-incumbency, and that when you are in power, it's going to feel like, I have this, I have this argument with a Democratic consultant friend of mine all the time, and he may be right, I may be wrong, but it feels to me like when you're in power, it's always going to feel like the other side has developed the, the neutron bomb that cannot be <laughs> countered, and four years later, it's going to be your bomb, and just like they do with the think tanks, because intensity f is oppositional right now. It just follows this anti-status quo feeling. People will just unload their pockets in whatever way they can find to get rid of somebody, but they're not willing to invest nearly so much in sustaining. But the difference a, a is that money is used for something else now. It's not only for advertising and television. It's used actually to do research that the media normally does. Yeah, that's always the I, I don't. I don't but, but I mean, campaigns have done that for decades. Now, how many journalists really came up yeah, with but their it's own not a campaign. Stuff. It's a super PAC, which is not linked formally to the campaign. Not formally. That makes a difference. Not formally, but they're all. No, I don't think no. it does. I mean, not formally, but they're still linked. They're still doing, I mean, they're, they're basically subcontractors for what campaigns used to do. I am less of a, I am less of an alarmist on the money, and I will tell you why, uh, in very briefly, because, I, I, look, I don't like it, and if I could wave a magic wand and publicly finance the system tomorrow, I would. Having said that, what drives the cost of political campaigns to exponential heights is television. And television advertising is just on the way in. And you can see them struggle to figure out what to do with this money. I mean, Howard Dean and George W. Bush opening offices. Howard Dean's opening offices in like all 50 states. George W. Bush was opening some beautiful office in downtown Guam. And I mean, there's, <laughs> only, there's only so much you can do with hundreds of millions of dollars when you can't pour it all, where it's not worth pouring it all into broadcast television. And I, I'm not saying the ads don't still have some impact, but I think there's a diminishing return on the money. I think there's a threshold you need to meet, and that threshold is too high, and it's going to keep some people out of the process. But I think beyond a certain threshold, whatever that number is in a primary or a general election, you can raise all the money in the world. The, the, the current of history is still going to be run on ideas and candidacies mm -hmm. and, and, and economic data, so that the sabermetricians among us, saber, saber mathematicians among us, don't go crazy at me, you know, for, for suggesting that politics is an entirely statistical enterprise. But I don't think it's going to be de determined by money. Short answers, short questions. Short questions. Um, yeah, that's not my forte. Um, <laughs> short answers are mine. That's right. We can go on the road together. Uh, okay, great debate. What it takes to get elected versus what it takes to govern. We could debate that across the 20th century. Now, let me ask you this, though. The thing you mentioned about the early days of this Obama administration, there was wrestling. I was in the White House then. You were reporting. What do we do with this horde, you know, the almost two million on the mall and all the rest and all the people out there. They didn't figure it out. They didn't, they kind of abandoned it actually pretty quickly. You know, sell the merchandise, that's not going to work. But this key question of can the incumbency ever manage to bring this horde across and to have it be a force in the actual governance of the country, 
it's, it seems to be one of the great uh, questions, and I, and I guess I wonder if you see uh, you know, any squaring of the circle out there, maybe it'll be the next incumbent who rises on a wave like Obama did, whatever that is. But, you know, or is it just what you say? It's just the, the nature of this beast that it just kills the equation. Yeah. When you've got an institution, when you've got incumbency, it's, it just, the whole spell gets spoiled Question or not. I think, I think the, answer is somewhere in, the answer is somewhere in between, right? It may be impossible to channel all of it, or a large part of it. But historically, uh, you know, great, great politicians and governors, you know, uh, in the literal sense, uh, who had a vision of where they wanted to go have been able to channel great movements. And I, I will say I'm not a political strategist, and I don't hold myself out as one, and no one should pay me to be one. Uh, but I will say, because I said at the time, uh, you know, doing like Charlie Rose or something, that, you know, I, I think that had this president, I, I, I think that they stopped campaigning. And I think they listened to the legislative impulse, which was, you have a blue sky, you have a crisis, shove a whole bunch of stuff in a bill and put it out there. And I still believe that if this president had gotten before the American people when he had a 70% approval rating and said, we've got three distinct mm -hmm. problems in the country. We have a short-term economic stimulus problem. We have a long-term fiscal footing problem. We have a tax reform. Our tax code is antiquated. And over the next 18 months, I'm going to lay out three solutions. I'm empowering a commission to do the tax. I'm going to do the short-term right away because we have to do it. And I'm coming back in six months to do the infrastructure and investment <laughs> agenda that's required for the 21st century. And I need you to bear with me. And had gone out and sold that on the road, you'd be in a different situation. I wish the Times had let you review my book. I'm really fascinated by this idea of deinstitutionalization of politics, because as I think about you describing it, I think about how uh, rigidly institutionalized governance has become, by contrast. I mean, we may talk about uh, transience and instability when we talk about presidential races, but the vast majority, 90% plus of Congress, gets reelected, reelected, reelected. The lobbyists on K Street don't roll over a whole lot. Uh, the bureaucrats are pretty much the same. And so you've got something in which the entire electoral system or the campaign system has even further disconnected itself from the, the larger weight of governance, which is what politics ultimately is meant to oversee. And I want you to talk about that, that if you think that that's a fair... Well, there are obviously you know rules to the system that are sustaining some level of incompetence. Adam DeGarney had it. My, my friend and colleague and, and model had a terrific piece in this morning's paper about, you know, uh, California, which is experimenting with a new redistricting system, and all of a sudden, lo and behold, like, you know, some unprecedented number of congressmen are going to go, and why, you know, people in California say, well, why us? I'm glad we're reformists, but why do we have to lose our seniority in Congress? Nobody else is doing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are, there are things that keep the system in place. Having said that, I don't think that status quo is sustainable by and large. I mean, just look at the incumbents who were ousted in 2010, uh, you know, we've had periods like that before, 1978, Republican activists got rid of a bunch of sitting Republicans who they thought were not sufficiently conservative. But I think, I think it'll be in greater numbers and greater, uh, and greater frequency. So I, I don't, I, I think incumbents, you know, look, will the majority of people continue to get elected? Yes. But I don't, I don't think all the sandbags in the world are going to stop the flood of uh, sort of of, of just uh, popular engagement in this process, and I don't, I don't think, I think the days where you could come into the United States Senate, like a Chris Dodd or a Ted Kennedy, and so I'll just sit here for 30 plus years are over. And I think, uh, like the rest of America, politicians are going to get used to the idea of having a couple of jobs in their lives. 
uh, and 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 you know, frankly, I know, I know you got me shut up. But what always astounds me about politicians is how they can't get their heads around that. That's the thing that always amazes me when it comes time to put courageous votes on the table or difficult things. Is the rest of America is grapple, you know, lives in a world where they're expecting to have now. If you're under a certain age, all of you who are students, how many careers do you think you'll have? How many jobs? How long do you think you'll stay in the longest job you ever hold? Right? These guys. They sit in Congress for like 25 years, like, I can't make that vote, I could lose. What is it about the seat? And this is one of my great quests, I'm always trying to figure out, what is it, what do they do for you there when we're not looking like that? <laughs> <laughs> what is it about the job that is so narcotic that you can't look in the mirror? And I respect John Boehner for this, I'll say, you know, whatever, they didn't get a deal last, last uh, uh, August, and I'm writing about this now, I'm doing a lot of uh, work on trying to figure out what went on between Obama and Boehner during that deadline period. But, you know, he went further than anyone thought he could with his caucus, and I think he was willing to risk his speakership to some extent. And give the man credit, because there are very few people in Washington willing to accept the, 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 the sort of uh, finite nature of their jobs. But isn't the answer that they get to keep power? One more question. Well, yeah, they still, they still make a lot of money. That's yes. I'll ask one. As first back, I'm always wary of looking at trends. Um, in particular, such highly salient ones like your, our flash mob politics you're talking about. Is it possible, especially, so you've been out there meeting and talking to a lot of Tea Party people, is it that we're so focused on this trend because it is so interesting for the media to look at? And it could also be possible that it, that what we're listening is not just this, this focused flash mob in politics, but there's also a heightened um, uh, participation for people in their communities, as you know, among Tea Partiers, and we're just the media. We're just not noticing it as much because it's not so exciting to look at. So, is that clear from your experience? You mean a, you mean a, a, a citizen movement outside what the Tea Party is? Yeah. Beyond that? Well, no. I mean, even among the Tea Party, but is it is it not so highly flashed political? But is it also talking about the Robert Putnam-esque involvement in the community? Just you know, um, look at a more ongoing, less flash mm -hmm. participation. Mm, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, you know, there, there, is, there is this community aspect I talked about. I mean, I, I agree with you that um, it's not all driven by a single political moment. It's, I mean, people are just getting engaged in, in different ways in their communities and in politics. But, um, but no, this, it, it's a fundamentally different thing that the internet, I think, in particular has wrought and the dissatisfaction politically with the moment and the collision of those two things, the social changes in the country. And I, um, and so I think, you know, is it, it, do we make too much of the Tea Party thing? I think we do only in the sense we, I say very broadly as the media, I don't necessarily blame myself, but I do think, I do think it, that some, that reporters do make too, mu too much of a sort of centralized idea. You know what it always reminds me of? It's remember, you know, the, uh, the notion of, you know, why, who lost China? The reason we lost China is because, uh, well, I don't know, there are people here who could tell you more, but one key reason we lost China is because we insisted on seeing this communist block, right? It was, it, we'd just come off these wars where there were axis of, of powers, and, and it was natural to see the Cold War as similar, and so everybody said, well, Russia, China, they all call themselves communists, they're, they're a block of countries, but in fact they saw the world very differently. I think we often see the Tea Party or other movements like this as a block. And, and politicians, they're always looking for leaders. They always tell you, you know, if you talk to them kind of off the record, like, who do I sit down with? You know, mm -hmm. we don't sit down with anyone. It doesn't work like that. It's very decentralized. 
And this is, you know, the, the challenge for the Tea Party movement in this campaign has been the inability to consolidate behind a candidate because there is no convention. There is no <coughs> process. It's not a centralized entity. There is no block. And, uh, and so in that sense, you're right. I think it's often presented <coughs> in a monolithic way. And it, it just isn't. Matt, it's always a pleasure to have you. Come back. Yeah, me too. It's so fun. I'm sorry about that. <laughs>